Hey guys, welcome to another episode of IDK What to Say. For today's episode, we have the co-founder and CEO of Dentuit Imaging, Dan Lee. We get to talk more about his app, how it started, the struggles, all of that. Also, we get to share the cultures of having an Asian family and, and growing up and taking a career outside of the healthcare field on his part. Also, we get to talk about other topics. If you are listening right now and you're planning to have your own app, this is the perfect podcast for you because he gets to discuss how to get recognition, how to attract potential investors and all of that. So without further ado, here is IDK, what to say. The views and opinions of the guest does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the host, the show, and the team. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to the second episode of the podcast where we figure things out and learn from the expert. Again, Paolo Gonzalez and IDK What to Say. Now, it's a really interesting episode on what we have right now. It's a good precursor to what we have uh, during the first one when we have Dr. Howard Ferran. You know, we had this conversation about him wanting or preferring a group practice more than anything else because you would have multiple eyes when looking at a case. But this is a game changer because this next person that I am going to introduce, he created a dental AI software where it pretty much mimics the same thing. And it's going to be in the comfort of a tablet or or your phone probably. And we're going to learn more from him. So he graduated in the University of Maryland, Baltimore County for a bachelor's degree in computer science. And that's also where he co-founded and he is the CEO of Dentuit Imaging. Let's give it up for Dan Lee. Hey, hey Dan. Hey, How you nice doing, man? Good, man. Good. Thank you for having me. Um, appreciate the time that you no, man, we're, we're really happy to have you here, especially uh, with this uh, technology that you are creating. It's so exciting. How does it feel that right now, you know, you you are in the cusp of creating something that would be helping dentists all over the world? It's a uh, it's a lot of different feelings, I would say. So it's exciting. It's uh, stressful. It's tiring. But it really is this seemingly fine balance that we're kind of playing between kind of, you know, using technology kind of research that we kind of understand from, you know, uh, ML and AI research and, and, and us coming from a more computer science background. We're trying to leverage what we understand uh, uh, computer science to be able to do, in this case, artificial intelligence and deep learning and all that, and be able to apply to some other industry like healthcare. In this case, this is uh, dental care. And so this idea of trying to now apply technology to actually solve a problem in some other space can be incredibly challenging for a couple of reasons. And so one would be, I would say, I'm not a dentist, or I don't happen to be, you know, a dentist in, in this scenario. But fortunately, I have a lot of family members that are. But I wonder if I was perhaps a dentist myself, would certain things go quicker? Or would it is it better that I wasn't a dentist to kind of mitigate as much perhaps personal bias as a provider. And then the second other challenging thing is, of course, kind of this idea of forging a new path, right? You said, 
you know, the, the idea of uh, this doesn't really exist. And, and that is fact of the matter, like matter of fact, like, you know, we, there's nothing like this exists and nobody has really kind of defined the pathway to kind of, you know, uh, inform perhaps, you know, companies that are coming up later on to kind of say, this is perhaps one way to kind of get to market and successfully kind of bring your technology uh, to, to solve a problem in, in, in the dental care space. And so we're trying to pretty much gamble on our decisions and hopefully make the uh, best decisions, uh, you know, moving forward. Yeah, man. You know, that's the interesting about this uh, company of yours, because you you do not, although you have family members who are uh, dentists, you, you don't have a dental background. And that is exciting in the sense that, you know, being a dentist and knowing people who are dentists in other school, we usually just uh, become very, very loyal to the the school of thought that we have in terms of learning certain stuff. But you, since you have no background, it gives a good angle because you have an open mind to get all information as possible and with less bias uh, with it. And I, I know there's a lot of things we'd talk about with Dentuit, but I'd like to start from the beginning. Uh, you said your family members are Dennis. What made you decide to go into computer science? Okay, yeah, so that's a great question. Actually, when you talked about me getting that bachelor's degree at uh, uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County or UMBC, which I think maybe some others would remember more as the upsetter in the NCAA tournament, the very first to kind of upset the first round, uh, FYI, UVA, hashtag. But anyways, uh, pretty much, you know, I, that, that was actually my second degree. And so I do, I do, I think it's important kind of to also kind of emphasize that, you know, it wasn't the most direct route that I, you know, arrived here to kind of be able to kind of, you know, really study and enjoy and embrace uh, computer science as, my profession more or less if you will but you know before that you know i actually got uh, i had gone to undergrad at uh, penn state university in pennsylvania and basically got a life science degree there in 2009 and you can only imagine around that time it was a you know it was a, a economic recession at the time although it seems a lot smaller compared to what we're going through now but it, there's a lot of similarities and parallels that is you know really um similar to what we're going through right now. And, and so, but I'm in a different situation now uh, compared to which, where I was in 2009. So it's, it's very fascinating to compare the two and see how I'm now getting through this, you know, economic kind of uh, 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 challenges with, with the position that I'm in, seemingly even in a more riskier position, trying to create a startup of all, in all times. But I will emphasize that, you know, the, Things that I've kind of always been kind of told, and what I'm what I kind of noticed from recent history is that some of the most successful companies, Airbnb, Facebook, you name it, Instagram, they all actually came out during the eco economic recession. It was around that time where I believe a lot of people just started to lose trust, including myself, in more of the system at the time, and and sort of you know the education system will you know a college degree will buy you a job directly, etc. That was kind of shattered and, and kind of a reality check around 2008, 2009 when I graduated with the life science. It was either I go to graduate school and invest even more student debt, or I, I kind of, you know, be without a job or do some, you know, low low wage job or what have you. And so that that was a reality check where I kind of spent then some time trying to figure out what I really wanted to do and and allowed also the world, the society, to develop uh, technology wise as well because 
around 2009, AI and ML is certainly not where you know it is today. Be it the both both the uh, uh, capabilities, but also the accessibility. I'm, I'm a big big proponent of of having in, and providing access to not only healthcare, if you will, but also uh, technology. The ability to kind of you know uh, use and, and and learn how to use technology to then be the next generation of problem solvers is a huge uh, motivation for me because that is sort of how I fell into then my next phase after life science, I suppose, is after a few years of kind of trying this and trying that and working some freelance, I ended up just code, I, did, I ended up actually searching in Google randomly, uh, bootcamp, coding bootcamp, because I read something about it. I read something about how you can actually uh, develop a career out of some bootcamp. And so I was like, no, no way, this is possible. And I Googled like bootcamp Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I am and wh which is where I was, born and raised around there. And one of the boot camps that was local to Baltimore came up. That was Betamore. And, and that is kind of to this day one of our startups uh, longstanding partner. Um, um, that is our kind of our facility where we do the R and D and our where our offices are. And and it all started from me kind of searching, you know, what is a boot camp and is there something like that in this area? And it, it, there was. And next thing you know, around 2016, I'm taking the boot camp classes, I'm getting like exposed to coding and and, and the things that you can do with that and then one thing led to another and i was like doing this internship with a very early stage startup and from there i kind of like learned the agile methodology principles and how to run maybe you know uh, a startup you know with many different responsibilities and at some point you know i wanted to go back to school and really kind of fully understand computer science from from an undergraduate kind of degree education pathway and i you know, with, with a little bit of money investment, I basically, you know, went back to school, in this case, UMBC, got the computer science degree, and basically went into UMBC with the intent of being an entrepreneur at that point. I wasn't going to just, you know, settle for another, you know, system kind of, you know, you know, based job where I have to kind of rely on some institution to kind of ensure my job security or whatever. I wanted to now uh do you know the things that i wanted to do and do it the way that i thought was right and and what i was taught over experience and internships and do it after i graduate and so right before i graduated uh with the computer science degree um at that point my brothers you know have graduated from dental school there they they're going into the dental field and i had this conversation with my uh middle brother who's a, again a practicing dentist here in the u.s and i i believe it was in toronto we were on a quick summer vacay uh, up in Toronto. Uh, beautiful there, by the way, during the summer, not in the winter, but during the summer. And uh, I heard, and, I um, heard. Yeah, but yeah, all the Uber drivers are like, yeah, it's nice now, but uh, yeah, that, you, you wait till you see the winter. I'm like, yeah, I won't be here in the winter. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, it, it, so, so yeah, I do remember this specific conversation with my brother and I was like, you know, just, you know, I was like, I knew a bit more about computer science technology and where it was in respect to society, like what was accessible, what was available and what was possible. And, and I was really getting into it. And I basically did like a customer discovery interview that I didn't even know was a customer discovery interview. Straight up asked my brother, you know, you know, without any in, you know, you know, interjection of AI or some other technology that could possibly solve something. I said, if there was some pain point that you wanted to just solve in your current workflow today, uh, you know, where you see your patients today. And it can be something that technology in general can potentially address. What would that be? What would be your number one top of mind immediate thought that comes to mind? 
And he, without question, no joke, just said, you know, to be honest, if I, as I'm like looking at the, you know, x-rays of my patients, I, I just wish there was a more reliable and quicker way for me to kind of ensure that I've kind of seen everything that I need to see in terms of interest areas so that then I can be a lot more comprehensive when I'm looking at the patient manually or when, when, when my brother David kind of then shuffles over to the patient and then starts kind of reconciling and confirming what he sees. He says, you know, he spends a little bit too much time, he feels like, uh, dealing with the various image processing filters that exist in today's imaging software solutions that probably Dr. Farhan knows about or talked about perhaps, you know, just basic, you know, brightness, contrast, you name it, right? The Instagram filter-like stuff that you have to manually apply and also play around with to get it to the right kind of settings so that then you can have the best possible kind of interpretation. Two things kind of stood out to me immediately when he told me that. One was, I think uh, that can be a solved problem if not already solved in some other domain with computer vision. And I was taking a computer vision course at the time. And then the second thing was, man, that's even worse than like the concerns that patients already have with this idea of, well, I wish those just a second opinion or just one other expert, you know, uh, qualified on the dentist level to be able to at least give me some secondary confirmation, right? Some affirmation. And so you combine those two and the need for some sort of consensus-based AI support becomes a lot more clear. And, and that was the case as I finished up the computer vision course, did a little kind of project where we just did a small kind of scale caries detector using uh, data augmentation, one of the machine learning techniques that I wanted to play around with. And me and my classmate, you know, we, we got some really just surprisingly impressive results to the point that that led into a pitch competition towards the end of my graduation, won the pitch competition, took that money and started uh, Dentist Imaging in the following summer. And then as I started, you know, I, I knew that I had to at least work for a little bit while I could you know, figure out a way to go full-time. And I can tell you how that happened for me to be full-time with Dentuit now. But for a year after I graduated, exactly a year, I, I just worked as a data engineer for a local uh, data analytics uh, uh, company in the area. Um, they were, uh, they contract with the CMS, which in the U.S. is a Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Insurance. And, and so I did some data engineering work uh, there. But you know, I knew going in that that was just going to be a placeholder for what I was going to eventually do was to find a way to go full time with Dentu, which is uh, the situation uh, now. Yeah, actually, uh, listening to your uh, story on how it started and learned from your brothers, I see you're going against the grain. And one question in my mind is what were your parents thinking when you decided to go this route that because I mean, right. uh, I'm Filipino. So yeah. Mostly in all Asian cultures, the parents would love for you to go the the safer route in terms of financial stability. Like they would probably ask you to become some someone working in the health field, or yeah. or probably in in uh, law or or business. But you went against the grain in a time where developing apps isn't really as lucrative as it is now. What, what did they yeah. tell you? When, when you told them that you're going to take this uh, kind of route? They're, they didn't take it seriously. They thought that it was more of a side, another one of Dan's uh, side project that is going to be a side project in their minds. Um, and I, I will be, I won't lie, I think it's still that sort of dynamic right now 
Um, that is how they feel more or less. But at some point I kind of, and so this is where I think the, the turning point in my life and how I kind of changed my perspective in a more maybe optimistic and productive way was around when I said, you know, so I started Googling for things, when I started Googling for basically, you know, boot camp opportunities and stuff. Cause you know, me asking my parents about that is a trivial effort, right? So the it's, idea was I, I, I could imagine. I realized that like, you know, maybe my parents are have the good intent. Obviously they don't have any kind of negative intent behind what they're trying to provide as advice or suggestions of what to do in my life. At some point, I just realized that there's limitations and therefore flaws with that as well. And so at some point I developed really a passion to uh, in, in being kind of self-driven, sort of kind of like making my, taking my own initiative to figure out some answers to the many questions obviously I had with my life at that time. You can only imagine before Betamore in the boot camp, many questions, right? Like why didn't, you know, what my parents told me it, it, uh, is going to work out is not working out. Is it because of the recession? And, you know, why is everything that used to work before the recession completely, you know, not working seemingly as a, you know, process to, to the American dream in this kind of recession that we're going through? And so a lot of questions were going through my head. And at some point I just kind of realized, you know what, you know, some people have limitations to what they know and that is their own little world. And I think everyone has a point where they kind of feel like maybe the other way is perhaps the better way given, you know, where society is going and, you know, we're a different generation from our parents. And so, you know, at some point you just block out the noise all you know with all respect I, I you know i don't believe in being disrespectful or anything and that sort of being this kind of rebellious character if you will but more just kind of respecting their opinions and their understanding of society in the world and then also accepting this kind of responsibility that you are you know you you are responsible for yourself at the end of the day right? you know it, it, it's that typical idea of kind of maturing perhaps uh, uh, and taking more responsibilities for yourself and the decisions that you make. And unfortunately, I will say as an Asian person kind of growing up, you don't really get that uh, uh, encouragement kind of for yourself. It's more like I don't, you know, as a parent, it seems like I don't trust what you're going to think for yourself. So let me tell you what I think is the right way and, and give that a shot. You know, something along those lines. You're never really encouraged as much to think for yourself. I mean, every situation is different, but I think on average, you know, that trust level between parents and, and, and children, if you will, I think is less so just, just because of the way Asian culture perhaps is. You kind of learn to respect and listen to your elders, etc. I know, but, uh, but at some point I just realized listening and being respectful is one thing. And, and it's a different thing compared to, you know, not, you know, it's different than you always just listening and doing what they tell you to do. There's a certain point where they're human beings and they don't know everything that they're, you know, that they're telling you. So it's a matter of just figuring out the answers for yourself. And that's what I ended up doing. And that's what I'm continuing to do. If, the, if it wasn't for the internet, to be very clear, I, I don't know where I would be, to be very honest. Like I learned a lot uh, of, of, of what I know now. From just you know this motivation to self-learn the things that are available online yeah i i totally agree with everything you said man i mean all our parents always want what's best for us and probably right. the reason why they would want you to be in in the health route or it's because during the time they were uh you know building their life 
that's probably the most lucrative jobs. And and if they hear something like uh, being a, an artist or, or being a, a coder would make millions of dollars, they wouldn't believe it because they never saw it in their time. But uh, right. the world evolves, technology evolves. And at the end of the day, you have to go with your gut because if you don't, then you know you don't want to blame them for not doing what you really want to do but yeah i get the respect i mean i i i always need to, we always need to find like that balance that we are honoring them and at the same time doing something we love because if, if we go uh, all in on their side or all in on our side without uh respecting or, or thinking of what they would uh what their uh, thoughts are regarding what we're doing, it, it's going to spell trouble, especially with yeah, our well, culture. It doesn't work out. It's so easy to start blaming them, right? You get this kind of... Exactly. Like, well, you told me to do this or that. You told me to do A and look how it turned out. See? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. was it really that way or was it really, you know? And so there's a lot of, you know, you know, blaming that goes on when you don't take responsibility for yourself and the decisions that you make very early on. And so that, you know, it doesn't mean that you just make reckless decisions on your own and say, well, that was my decision, I don't care, I stick by it. But making informed decisions, like, you know, I, I think we're all reasonable here and fairly intelligent in the sense that, you know, we try to make the, the most informed decision possible. And that, again, goes back to kind of doing your own research, doing the due diligence to kind of know at least enough to kind of then be dangerous with it, if you will, to kind of be able to make some effective decisions because people always say this right you know life is in the decisions that you make one after another and they are a sequence of a cause and effect right so more or less but there's always you know learning opportunities in those areas only when you again i think take responsibility if you don't what what motivation and initiative do you have to say oh okay well i'm going to learn from that because uh, that, that didn't work out Rather, you're busy kind of blaming other people and blaming other kind of reasons that may or may not may have been a partial factor, but is not the main kind of uh, uh, driving force behind that perhaps not working out. And you can look at it in various other ways, right? Like not working out for you at that time may seem like this devastating, you know, game over situation. Whereas if you kind of maybe step back a little bit, look at the higher kind of, you know, that the 20 foot level view of the situation, was it a setback or was it just one step towards the end goal that you were pursuing? And so it's those things that kind of you learn, you know, I guess, uh, uh, sort of along the way. Yeah, and, and I mean, looking at what's going on with your life right now, it seems that the payoff is really good. But yeah, let's talk about then to it. I mean, if for our listeners who aren't familiar with the dental AI, could you explain to them sure. what Dentuit is to the uh, to the dental world? Sure, of course. So Dentuit is basically dental artificial intelligence technology, basically. Uh, uh, more specifically, uh, it's a clinical decision support system, if you want to look at it that way, for providers and even payers pairs meaning the dental insurance carriers in here, at least in the US, because of the way that the insurance works here, you know, uh, compared to maybe other non-US countries, there's a lot of, you know, uh, fraud, waste and abuse that also occurs, you know, when you're submitting claims in a certain way. And so there's opportunities there too, and I can talk about that as well. But the main kind of, 
you know, driving force behind Dentuit and the reason why, and the use case that we had in mind when we started Dentuit was to be able to seamlessly support the dentist while like my brother is reading an x-ray to be able to get some extra uh, uh, opinions and support information that is also rendered on that image so that the patient is not only getting the kind of the advice and a diagnosis based on just one person's interpretation of an image that they see or an x-ray that they see, but rather the dentist's interpretation combined with countless numbers of dental experts that has been involved in developing our model. And so that is what we mean when we say consensus-based clinical decision support. That consensus is, is an extraction, a derivative of basically how we train our model to then provide the inferences that ultimately render as these kind of colored uh, indicators on, on these x-rays that the dentist is looking at. And so how we train it is we have input, right? Including yourself, Paulo, you know, from various multiple dentists, not only from a specific region, from all over the world, and also be able to kind of feed uh, new data images and x-rays to the model that are diverse and, and, and are kind of generated by multiple sensors. And so that kind of plays into the other aspect of our goal and our mission, is that we want to not only seamlessly support the provider in that workflow and provide as much you know, non-biased uh, information uh, as possible for the patient as well at that point of care, but to be able to do it across any region and any location, such that you can use any sensor, any imaging software, and be confident in knowing that you can download Dentif Dentify, which is the name of our product or service, and download into it and, and effectively still get the benefits and get started right away in, 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 in the easiest way possible. So we kind of look at that as our kind of primary objective is, you know, is it, are we making their process more difficult or are we making it a lot more easier? And if we're making it a lot more easier while kind of improving the quality of the diagnosis, that being kind of allowing the dentist to kind of detect early lesions like cavities early on before waiting too long and then you have to do the drill and fill, but maybe pre present more opportunities to kind of go down a more minimally invasive route. That's the beginning, I think, of a transformation that you'll see in dentistry. So I, I do think Dentuit is a small part. Dental AI is a small part. Uh, it, it, will be, it will be hype and nothing but hype to say that dental AI is the future and that is the solution to all your dental problems because that is simply not true. But it is a part. It is a player. I'm, maybe not a small part, but it, it's certainly a player, not, not the main thing, but just a role towards transforming dentistry into a lot more evidence-based care, that you're not so worried about the bias of that one dentist kind of influencing the treatment plan. I know there's a lot of concerns amongst patients, right? Where, why is he telling me that I have so many cavities? I don't feel much, but you know, it seems that he's just trying to now make a quick buck off of me. Those type of yeah. questions need to yeah. be nullified because we're talking about healthcare. This is not some cosmetic treatment that you're going you know, and saying that, you know, off a menu, you want, you want this and this done. But the thing is, that is somewhat the case in dentistry today, at least in the U.S. anyways. It's sort of like, I want to get these, this tooth kind of uh, treated and fixed, but, you know, maybe I'll pay for that tooth later. You know, something along those lines, that kind of very kind of consumer-based approach. There's good benefits that come from that type of model, for sure. At the same time, you know, we're talking about healthcare. It, it shouldn't be this idea of kind of fundamental 
um, 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 compromises to your health due to you know a menu-based pricing scheme or something along those lines. And so if we can standardize and normalize the, the dental care in a little bit more kind of consistent manner, no matter where you are as a provider, no matter where you are as a patient, and no matter what your economic and you know background is, that you will get fairly good dental care no matter who you see. No, no, no more of this kind of man. Um, is there another dentist that you can refer me to that really, you know, many people will trust? Kind of going off that connection route, but just knowing yeah. that oh, yeah. they use Dentuit or some dental AI technology, at least confirming that understanding will then give you this sense of you know more, 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 more confidence in, in, in the care that you're getting. Because my brother jokes around all the time, Paul. I don't know about if that happens to you, but my brother always jokes around saying that every time he leaves a room, the operatory room. Um, he always kind of overhears his patients kind of yeah, yeah, like yeah. whispering to the assistants or the hygienist and asking them, by the way, you, you think, you know, Dr. Lee's uh, 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 suggestions are, are, are right? Like, is it too much? Is it too little? Like, what, what do you think? And, and they always try to get some kind of affirmative kind of a confirmation from, from the people there. But you know, the thing is, like, my brother jokes around saying that they've already have, they, they've already had a story kind of already kind of, uh, planned out and everything. And so the assistant already knows this coming. And so the assistant is just like, oh yeah, absolutely. You need, yeah, Dr. Lee knows what he's doing and, and yeah, everything that he says, yeah, yeah, definitely go go with his suggestions. And so they work together in that sense, but yeah. if there's a way where we can kind of, uh, you know, minimize the bias there and really kind of present a more standardized approach to at least identifying issues in an x-ray, ultimately we don't diagnose. That is number, uh, you know, that is that is another thing that you know a lot of people kind of mistaken tend to it for is also you automate the diagnosis of you know uh, you know certain lesions or whatever, and we don't. What we do is we optimize the opportunities for the dentist to make the best possible diagnosis every single time. Not when you're up in the morning early and you're seeing your very first patient, you're fresh. You get you you know you you just had your coffee and you and you're on a roll and your diagnosis is on point, and then maybe towards four p.m. you're kind of fading out and your diagnosis is maybe not quite up to par or whatever, you know. But being able to make that more consistent with technology like AI is very much possible, and I think is very much needed. For sure. Yeah, man. Actually, that's that's the cool thing about it. Like. Um, of course, there's going to be patients or insurance who would be doubtful if, if you marked something as, as a tooth filling or a cavity. And having something as a dental AI where they're going to see it in the app and they are sure that it wasn't made by someone I know personally. Because usually they would think I'm in connivance with someone else if they ask for a second referral. At least right. they, they would have that thinking that, hey, there is really something in this tooth and, and it's what's going to happen. And for us dentists, the cool thing about it is that, you know, it minimizes eye fatigue. I've always said this, that, you know, if you have multiple patients uh, coming, especially uh, during the pre-pandemic phase, sometimes you tend to overlook some cavities because you're already so tired from doing the treatment. Or sometimes if you have an x-ray and, and you need a second opinion, sometimes you DM your friends who are also dentists, and sometimes you don't know when they are going to reply. But having an AI like yours, it's going to have instant results as soon as the uh, x-ray would come. I mean, as soon as you uh, put it in, it's going to show. But 
with regards to that, uh, I want to ask though, because I'm totally for it. Have you heard some various reactions from different dentists? Because I'm sure the older dentist might have a different opinion and with regards to the newer one. That's what we thought. Um, but the thing is, and I'm not even saying this to kind of, you know, pitch or kind of make ourselves even look better or what have you. I surprisingly, and this is surprising even to me, have received very little kind of negative or, or a kind of a resistance to kind of some some kind of technology like ours, especially when we pitch it in a way where we say, you know, you're not gonna be changing very much of your existing workflow. You're just adding a small little piece that will just be, and you know, basically kind of operating with your current workflow so that we just augment kind of what you're already doing rather than replacing it. And so when they hear something along those lines, they're absolutely kind of thrilled. They're actually fascinated. And they actually, you know, talk about, you know, the various emerging alternative technologies that may also claim to aid in caries detection, things like, you know, transillumination devices and those type of things. And no joke, like a lot of the older dentists who've kind of had the years to kind of give them a shot because, you know, they've been around for a few years and they say they gave them that shot. It just seems a little awkward, extra to do, and just it, it will never replace my examination of the x-ray anyways, that transillumination that device that you use while you're kind of looking at the patient manually only serves to support and help you do what you're doing at that time. Meaning you know, while you're looking at the you know patient's mouth, you can confirm a little bit better perhaps what you saw in the x-ray, but it doesn't ever really improve the x-rays as is. And then when we talk about, when we ask them, you know, what is your x-ray imaging software experience like now? It's hardly this uh, this case of it's it's amazing or it's so easy to use. Most of the time, there's a lot of complaints of, of, of mouse clicks and just the limitations that image processing filters have. I mean, it's it, it, the intent is is pretty clear to kind of improve the quality of the image to help the dentist better identify things. But that's a, still a very manual and time-consuming process that only adds to the cognitive and, and eye fatigue that, that you're, you were referencing earlier. This idea of just sitting there, you know, image after image and, and, and having to parse through every single image. The other kind of thing that, you know, our technology and even our competitors will be able to do with AI is this idea of just flagging and giving you an idea while you're looking, let's say, at a full mouth spread of the images. Just those images that you want to perhaps look further into and zoom into. And our technology and how we want to have it operate is this idea that as soon as you zoom in, our application kicks in and you are able to now be able to, you know, uh, see our inferences and then also take them away just as easily and, and be able to just, you know, compare what our model is inferencing, what you're seeing, and then go right to the page. No need to kind of, you know, tool around with the various filters that, that may be there, go through these arcane menus of, you know, multiple clicks to get to something and configure something. None of that. We just want it to be bam, 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 so that you can spend most of your time as a dentist actually doing the necessary procedures or actually kind of manually examining the patient thoroughly uh, with enough time there so that you're not, you know, wasting, you know, unnecessary time with the image uh, part of it as well. And so there's a couple of things that I've noticed that is just kind of so unique to the dentist that I think the AI sort of directly addresses compared to, let's say, 
physicians in the medical field, right? So I don't know what it's like in the Philippines, but here in, in the US, in hospitals, doctors and radiologists, when they take an MRI or an X-ray or a CT scan of some sort, there's not just one radiologist or a doctor looking at the image. One doctor looks at it, provides his or her opinion. Then it goes to another person, provides his or her opinion. Then it goes to another specialist, his or her opinion. And then they combine it and as like a panelist of any kind, they will make a consensus. They will make a group-based decision on what they see and make the final diagnosis from there. And that's it, always the case. For any x-ray that you'll be working with uh, in a hospital setting, maybe in, in, in a private practice and you have one physician, maybe, maybe like an ortho a physician, maybe it's one, but very rare. In dentistry, not rare at all. In fact, you're gonna always just get that one dentist and that one dentist input with the x-rays. And then the other thing is this idea that, you know, with dentists, especially general dentists here, they're expected to be just as good as a radiologist, as an oral radiologist, as they are to be with their hands and a dentist at that. It's, it's kind of interesting how it, they're expected to do a little bit of everything, like literally everything. Be a business person running a practice, be a radiologist looking at the x-ray, be the technician being the one that's also kind of, you know, doing the filling and implants and crap. you name it, like almost anything and everything. In the medical field, they don't do that. They have a specialization where certain doctors and specialists are only allowed and trained and certified to kind of be able to read x-rays and just do that all day. You know, and radiologists in the hospital today, that's their job. They literally get these images to them, they provide their opinion, and then, you know, rinse and repeat. And so we don't see that in dentistry and, and we wonder, you know, why, and there's, I'm sure, reasons for it. But I think the fact of the matter is that is that expecting somebody to do everything, you know, um, and do a very good job at all of that would be a lot, right? And so can we automate certain things that we know we can automate with even better quality assurance so that we can then allow the dentist to really focus on their craft? their ability to kind of do the, do a good job on the patient so that the patient has, you know, less opportunities to have decay, right? Things along those in nature and, and really kind of take the time to instruct the patient about proper oral hygiene. Like the time is now there if we are able to use AI to just offload the imaging aspect of it from you guys. And that kind of leads into my vision and now, you know, that's my last probably long spiel of of Dentuit is a vision and how I see Dentuit fit into the future, but that sort of is a segue into what I see Dentuit really becoming or dental AI rather, really kind of helping facilitate for, for the future of dentistry. So, um, yeah. Yeah, man, and, yeah. and that is indeed true. That's, those are some of the things that uh, people don't see in dentists compared to other health fields is that we need to be well-versed in multiple aspects. And most likely the reason is, you know, a toothache is uh, a real pain in the butt if you experience it. Like if you cannot sleep because of a toothache, you really cannot sleep because the pain is out of this world. And that's the cool thing about uh, Dentuit is that, you know, you, we get to have that second opinion that we would want from our uh, friends uh, immediately. And also going back to what you said, it's so refreshing 
that uh, you barely heard anything negative about it because I'm sure you could ask your brother when it comes to new technology and dentistry, there's always going to be opposing views because like I said, every school has a different school of thought and some are more better in this uh, procedure or in this school of thought than the other. So it's really nice that you're like the glue that connects everything together. Now, um, again, the title of this podcast is IDK What to Say. It's because we try to figure things out. Now, we talk about Dentuit, but this is for the listeners who are thinking of starting their own, uh, their own app or their own uh, program or something. What are the initial uh, obstacles that you experience when, when uh, making Dentuit happen in, in the business or in the, uh, the programming standpoint? Well, so from the programming standpoint, um, a, lot, a lot of the technology developments of the model itself is, is sort of on my co-founder. And so that may be an invite. So my co-founder is uh, John. He has a PhD in computer science and is, you know, currently also a senior scientist at a, at a uh, you know, a federal lab here in this area. And and so like the, the capabilities are certainly there. So I will say that like probably the important thing from my angle and my perspective is to really learn to, to collaborate, learn to kind of be uh, open to working with other people and understanding what you're able to do and what you're not able to do really well. You know, it's easy to kind of be in this kind of train of thought where you can just do a little bit of everything yourself. And that's simply not possible if you want to do a good job and be successful. And so understanding what you're really kind of uniquely kind of good at on a consistent basis and how that perhaps integrates and matches up with your future co-founders, if you will, you really want to, that's why a lot of investors say, again, for one, they look for that ideal number of two as like the starting founding team, the two co-founders, never really one. And then secondly, they always invest at such an early stage in not your idea, but the team, the founders. They want to see, you know, how well you guys work together. And it makes complete sense because John and I, we could perhaps be doing some other tangential AI project and we will be operating and being productive just the same, you know? And so what does that mean? Is that then that goes into my other advice and in, in kind of, you know, some advice about starting maybe a company around technology, you know, and starting off as an entrepreneur is always understand your problem space to start. And I always say this to everyone, I, I'm like, you know, a, a broken record in that respect, but I'm a firm believer that the, you don't start with a solution. You don't start with the technology. You start with the problem space, the problem itself. You just sit there and understand what is the as is so that you can then see where that technology could be the could be in the future. So that, you know, the, the, the solution that you make is actually the solution. It's not some technology that's just a magic trick at the end of the day. Because a lot of AI, I'm afraid, is, is becoming like that in, in, in some sense with all the hype that is going on. It's hard to tell if it's actually machine learning or is it using neural networks and, and deep learning. And so, you know, I, I think it's also important that, you know, I, so I'm the CEO and I, you know, my co-founder is the CTO. And as a CEO, you know, it's not very common to see a level of technical understanding and, and some basic background with that. Oftentimes you see, you know, I don't know, maybe the trend is going to change with AI startups becoming a, a bit more kind of, 
ubiquitous in, in our society as it's becoming a lot more access accessible and everything. But, you know, you see a lot of technology startups prior to that with, you know, very kind of a CEO with a business mindset and then a CTO with the non-business, but just the technical mindset. I don't believe in that. I believe that, you know, um, it's important to kind of know a little bit of everything to a certain point where you can be dangerous with it, right? Like what I said earlier. Yeah. But the idea that, you know, I came with a computer science with a, some life science kind of understanding and background. And, and, and that allows me to have very productive, meaningful and progressive conversations with my CTO rather than me just sitting there assuming that whatever he's saying is going to be always right or whatever. And you just go with whatever he or she says. And so it's important, I think, to know also your, you know, your, the technology that you want to build and how you want to build it to a certain degree, no matter what, you know, your main role is. And so, you know, knowing, you know, what you truly are there for as a kind of a, a role player as part of this team. And then also certainly kind of knowing, you know, the other person's roles to a certain degree and being able to kind of work together on that. And then, you know, really finding somebody that you can really work well with. I mean, that's you know easy to say. And I know, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in that. But, you know, I, I think for me, the reason why I was able to perhaps identify John as a collaborator and a co-founder and such is that, number one, I knew myself better. Right. The only way that you know how you're going to work well with somebody else is if you know your tendencies and how you work well in certain high stress situations. Because guess what? This whole startup thing from day zero is a high stress situation because there's a lot of risk involved. And it so, seems so. How, so how do you know yourself in these high stress situations? And then how do you, how does that play off of your partner, of your co-founder? You know, how do they respond to high stress? And you really want to kind of do that kind of initial testing out process. And that's what John and I exactly did. And this is how I was able to eventually become full time is I think we looked at, you know, so when we hooked up around the summer to become, you know, co-founders for this venture, you know, we were, we were still both kind of occupied with a day job, but we knew that this was something that we were really truly passionate about, but we needed to figure out, do we well work, do we work well together and make this successful? And so, uh, we, we took around from the summer until the November of 2019, so pretty much the end of 2019, effectively just working on this one federal grant, this proposal. And this is like a multi-month effort. And this kind of really kind of gave us an idea of how well we work together or how do we work together and, and what are some of the things to keep in mind when we work together. And, and that was really that testing out kind of point where then when we – kind of submitted a successful proposal and, and we got the award in the following year in June, July, 2020. That was, that was a huge validation that, you know, not only is our idea considered promising by other people, including federal agencies, but that we were able to kind of work together between two people and, and bring together a proposal that is oftentimes written by a team and, and, and be not only accepted for the award, but also have across the board just positive reviews from our examiners, our review and our feedback. It's just the way that we, you know, created the proposal. It was just a reflection of our workflow process. We use Trello. We use various kind of cloud-based tools. And so our transition to let's say remote work and coronavirus times in this kind of you know era that we're living is in now wasn't too much of an adjustment because. You know, we were only meeting up, uh, you know, every Sunday 
you know, uh, to kind of meet in person and at least kind of get more work done on the spot. But most of the time we were learning how to leverage the tools that we have access to at a minimal cost to be able to optimize collaborative workflows through the cloud, through, through online, and it wasn't much of an adjustment when the pandemic hit for us. Well, it's really good that you found the perfect partner. But yeah, man, one thing that I'm so curious with is if you're going to have a tech startup, like how do you find, um, congratulations by the grant, by the way, but how do you yeah, find those leads, man? Do you do you know somebody who has connections? Is there a site you could check like, hey, where can I find potential investors for this app I'm doing? And how does the pitching process work? Right. So we haven't even gotten to that point of pitching investors. Uh, we've learned through, you know, um, webinars. And that is part of probably my answer that I was going to really say is that, you know, everything is a lot more remote now. So a lot of things are webinars. So you get to attend a lot more things. But at the same time, before the pandemic, you know, I was trying to plug myself into the startup uh, community as much as possible in this region, in this Baltimore area. And so to be quite frank, um, you know, I, I, so so I don't know what other communities are like, and I, and I do and am aware that perhaps other communities, other less metropolitan cities don't have as much of a community or, or, or things like that, but they do matter. That's the point I'm trying to make. So someone is looking to at least start some community to then segue into perhaps companies that may be born out of such community. That is the only way I think that oftentimes you see innovation really come out of this one hub or, or region. And for me, I was plugging myself into the Baltimore's kind of the city's kind of startup community at the time, some combination of student entrepreneurship, but really also kind of health tech entrepreneurship communities and the biotech without any AI, but still biotech in that area because Baltimore is unique and, and fortunately so to have some of the top medical institutions uh, in this area, you know, Johns Hopkins, being one of them and, and such, and, 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 and the UMB Maryland medical system, as well as several other universities in the area. And so you see a lot of kind of non-medical research kind of now converging, something like computer technology research, converging with the highly kind of uh, sophisticated and advanced medical research that's been around in Baltimore for years now with Johns Hopkins medical system, Maryland medical system, and now you start to see kind of now this kind of interdisciplinary collaboration that you see with our uh, team as well. And that was kind of the driving force behind our compelling kind of motivation for developing a, a solution that we think will really work because we've decided to partner with an entire dental school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Start. And that was one of our earliest strategic decision to make was, you know, we were always going to be science first and making a quick buck wasn't always, wasn't going to ever be the priority. The priority was, you know, answering the question of how can we make the best possible, you know, support system with the detection model and make it as usable and, 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 and easy to use as possible. In answering those questions, making a quick buck isn't really the best strategy to get there. The, the strategy is, okay, where's the science that, you know, is not quite there yet. What is the you know the expertise that we need as dentists that we don't have internally or in house? That is obviously that kind of team of clinical experts that we're now working with at the dental school. And so I always tell other kind of health tech startups that you know are asking for advice or asking about you know what are some of the things that I think about or I thought about when starting was really being open again to collaboration. 
to really this idea of if you're going to be especially an AI startup, an AI in a vacuum by itself in some blank area is absolutely useless. I don't care how sophisticated or amazing the techniques are, or the it doesn't matter. If it doesn't solve a problem, it's useless. So the idea is that you work with the necessary experts to understand, okay, how can I make this amazing, potentially amazing technology useful? And that is really the beginning of that conversation of understanding now, oh, so this is the current workflow. Oh, oh so this is why you're, you're considering AI because like this is the issues that you're dealing with. And you're starting to understand now as a computer technologist, you know, the broader kind of problem space that you're kind of trying to develop a, a solution for. And so that conversation leads to one thing to another. And so how I got plugged in actually, again, was initially that that kind of me going to these small kind of events. And again, this was in person at the time, wasn't as virtual, but I think making it virtual now is even more accessible. But I was going to these and I just met this one lady uh, who was actually the director of, uh, of the state's kind of venture development fund of one of the many funds, but she was the director for that kind of particular fund. And one thing led to another, she kind of helped me uh, uh, discover even and know about something like this fund, this kind of grant. And I was persistent and you sort of have to be that way in the beginning. No one knows you at the beginning. And I'm also learning that no one is also gonna really know that your thing is amazing. There's gonna be a lot of skepticism much more and way beyond just your parents, right? Like this idea that I, one kind of thing that I kind of didn't expect as much was this level of um, still kind of skepticism and disbelief about, you know, what I am capable of doing. Maybe the way I look, I don't, I don't know, but maybe because we're so small as a two founding team, but maybe also AI is just lost on many people still. And that just comes with education and, and that comes with kind of level setting expectations, right? And so I think for me, it's just a matter of, you know, working with the right people, having the conversation and having the right conversations with the right people and the right areas of time. So, you know, first, you know, to start, just, you know, you know you, people, people who says this is, is right, just, you know, get yourself out there whether it's, you know, attending these, you know, webinars, because how I fill my schedule these days outside of the R&D that I do is literally webinars. Like, you know, a lot of the Eventbrite stuff and various health tech, I just try to expose myself to as much knowledge and maybe some networking possible. I, I will say the networking is a little bit overrated with the virtual thing. I don't think it's very effective, nor is there much motivation for me to network with strangers over Zoom or whatever. But you know, I, I think the idea of being able to access now various live information sessions through webinars to learn and expose yourself to new ideas and concepts is more accessible than ever. I mean, when you're talking about everything being online and largely free because they are online, there's no logistical overhead or anything like that. Um, the, 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 the opportunities in my mind are almost limitless when, when you, if you have the mindset of, you know, just a learning and a learner uh, mindset. For sure yeah man and again that's that's really insightful because 
I, I would think that, you know, if I was starting a tech company, it would be so hard to explain to someone that, hey, this is me, my name, which you aren't aware of. And this is my idea, which is ne- which has never been, been seen anywhere. And it's really good that you made the point that, you know, you have to make your name out. You got to put your name out there so at least people would be familiar with you so that if you pitch something, they'd, you, you'd get some backing up. But uh, going to what you said, another uh, ingenious thing about uh, Dentuit, aside from getting dentists all over the world, is tying up with a school. And the reason for that is, you know, it's so hard to get a recall of a patient when it comes to taking tests. But since it is in a school, if you have like a certain patient that you could take multiple styles of x-rays, bite wing, periapical, or panoramic, and you could cross-examine if the AI would work on the bite wing, the periapical, if it's going to be the same type of uh, depth or, or cavities, would they detect it in the same method? That's the cool thing about uh, going with the school route. And also, you know, that students will always bring patients in. So it's, it's really smart you did that, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, we were just talking about that. This idea of, you know, as we were talking about next steps and ideas, I don't want to give away too much. But one of the ideas was just that, was this idea of not just randomly curating data from a large data set like x-rays from a large data set and just randomly doing that, but rather now kind of being a little bit more intentional and specific in how we curate images based on the patient. So leaving panoramic aside, let's say we have a bioing and a, and a uh, periapical for roughly the same set of tooth in the same anatomical location. And we know that because we curated it in that way, right? Then we can begin to compare the performance of our model across different image types. It's harder to do that when you know that the image of a bite wing and the image of the periapical that you're comparing the model on are looking at two different things. But if we exactly. know let's say, that that tooth that, that those two images are looking at or, or has a, a capture of is the same tooth with a certain lesion or some you know profile that we already know beforehand as ground truth, to use as a corollary, we can compare that based on how our model then sees it across both periapical and bioing. And you would like to hope that the ideal situation would be that it would be the exact same inference being made because the model recognizes the same kind of more or less lesion that the tooth is rendering or displaying, even if it's a periapical or a bioing. Now, to be very clear, the model is not going to know. Oh, we're looking at the we're looking at the very same tooth. That's not going to be the the approach or the arrival at the inference at the end. But it's going to recognize the lesion and the demographic exactly. in a periapical setting as well as a bite wing setting. And I'm you know with carious lesions, we know that with the angle angulation of the beam with the periapical, there's going to be a lot more distortion and a lot less certainty with the carries. And so we're trying to figure out ways to make that a lot more robust. And one way of doing that is to understand first, how do we compare the results that we get at the end of the day? Yeah, man, and, and that uh, very well said. Also, aside from the x-rays, you know, if you need to yeah. cross-check with the patient itself, you you have the accessibility too. But yeah, going to Dentuit, like what is your timetable before this becomes readily available to the 
public and and by that i mean like it will be available in apps or you could already uh, insurance could already use it and in the full stage and not just a beta test right yeah those are all great questions and some of those questions we're still you know working through or trying to understand better to, to answer as we kind of develop uh, you know our, our technologies we're still very much still in the r d phase although we're more now on the tail end of things so that now we're starting to see you know how we can now now we're seeing the, the door open for us now transition to uh, uh uh making our model as is having trained usable and having that in in some prototype and usable sense and so we want to get to that stage without again giving away too much, uh, but yeah, you don't need to. Yeah, no, no, but uh, our timeline really is that that approach that we see with some other, you know, fellow, you know, uh, uh, dental AI startups in this country is this idea of first kind of, you know, or in parallel kind of provisioning a solution for both the provider and the payer. So the insurance carriers in this respect comes first uh, in, in in the timeline of things, and that is how others are also doing it largely because of the regulatory obstacle that really kind of takes precedence for being able to have our, our product be used by the providers. And so, you know, as we kind of figure out, you know, and everyone figures out the pathway to, to market for that with, you know, to the provider market, you can also have a parallel solution for the, for the payers, for the insurance carriers. And so we're actively kind of working on that. And we're actively trying to now kind of formulate early relationships and pilot kind of opportunities now uh, over the, I would say the next few months. And by the summer, we should have a very good understanding of who our insurer partners are and, and what our pilot program and what, what success for that pilot program that we're planning would look like. And so by the end of the summer, I imagine that we would have uh, our, our pilot well underway and our, and our relationship really actively kind of well underway with, with some national insurers in this country and some of the programs that we've been applying to as well, while kind of continuing to do very kind of deep clinical and technical R&D on, on basically bringing our other kind of technology for the provider to use. And that is a lot more, I will say, difficult of a computer vision challenge. That's also another reason why we see a lot more early kind of uh, 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 demos for insurers be a lot more possible because I, I think the computer vision problem that is trying to solve is is, is a bit more simpler and, and a bit more trivial compared to the more complex case of a physician or a, sorry a dentist looking at the X-ray. Um, they're looking for a lot more things and perhaps a, a lot of more nuanced things that that perhaps a claims review processor isn't looking for as much. They're just looking to approve or reject uh, based on a, a claims uh, being submitted. And so, um, but that, that being said, I mean, in terms of when we'll have something on the market for the dentist, we we want, we're, we're doing our best to push that, you know, timeline, uh, uh, you know, closer and closer to sometime next year. But we, we, we will see with that. Um, we wanna, you know, we're, we're, we're in some sense in no rush because we're focused so much on making sure the initial process of the R&D is done properly in documented fashion, in a scientific evidence-based fashion, so that at the end goal, it, the, the, the end result will kind of sort of formulate on its own. 
because the thing is, uh, truly, with an AI product, I, 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 I do believe that many of the decisions that you make in the beginning, not at the end with the hyper-tuning and all that, but the algorithmic kind of, yeah, but rather the project decisions that you make at the very beginning for your machine learning project is going to dictate the performance and the quality of your product at the end, downstream. And so we're taking that very seriously because that is our you know, understanding based on our experience. And we're really taking our time to make sure our R&D is pretty much on point in terms of you know, addressing the various concerns like bias, concept shift, various kind of data science related statistical kind of concerns that is, is emerging or is well aware of, in, in, especially in the medical imaging uh, space. And we wanna definitely uh, uh, not just ignore it and keep it on the side and, and just focus on marketing our product. Like that, that is not our concern. We wanna be able to truly kind of be effective once we kind of deploy our, our product to, to market. And that again, starts with something as like data curation. How did you collect your data? How did you annotate your data? What was your standard? What was your process? And what was the thought kind of the thinking behind it? Is it documented? And to be quite frank, are, where, where are your scientific publication on that? You know, and I we don't see much of that still yet anyways. We anticipate more and more coming out from some of our, you know, competitors, if you will, uh, in, the, in the coming months, hopefully. And we'll be doing the same. Our goal has always been, again, science first. And, and part of that is being able to publish and have peer-reviewed, you know, our, our study results and our findings. Uh, yeah, man, that's that's really a good mindset when it comes to uh, making your app because for all tech startups, it's always a rat race on who gets to release it first. But you don't want to release anything that is half-baked or or that is filled with bugs because right. at the end of the day, it's it's going to blow up uh, on, on your yeah, end if, if, if it isn't loud. working catch it right and they'll hopefully catch those type of you know uh technology submissions and won't you know give it the clearance to have it sold to the providers directly and so there's a reason why i guess the process is a bit rigorous here in the u.s is that you know they they use that rigor to essentially filter out hopefully anything that may harm the patient in some in some sense um and yeah. so it's all risking that technology so that it provides the benefits with minimal risk uh, to the patient. Hopefully. That's true, because yeah, at the end of the day, it should be the patient, the dentist, and the the insurers who would be benefiting from this. Now we are winding down already in this episode because you've been very generous with your time. But I have to ask, man, outside of Dentuit, do you still have other ideas for apps that you want to build? Is there anything oh, yeah. uh, moving forward for you? I mean, I I think my mindset and perspective on this has been more serial in terms of entrepreneurship. And so it's more like, you know, when people are like, you know, how, you know, are you gonna stick with this company and take it public and et cetera? I mean, I, and those are questions that are a little bit uh, less relevant to me and, and more, it's more about what are the problems that I can solve next. And so for me, it's more just, you know, moving on to the next thing. And so absolutely, I I try to remain focused on the Dentuit stuff at hand uh, so that, you know, we can uh, achieve it successfully. Uh, uh, but, of course, there are other ideas that I have. And, you know, some of them are, you know, health-related as well. Some of them are related to my personal life that I wish I had, obviously. You know, and some of them I see already kind of uh, uh, happening in our space 
you know, while I'm trying to, you know, work on Dentuit. And so those are all exciting things. And so one perhaps thing that I've been thinking about is uh, just mental health and the ability to kind of really recognize and, and, and be able to better identify and manage and just deal with the stigma of more or less mental health in, in our society. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it's an American thing or if it's just a thing in general, but mental health in my mind, it just is such a broad and, and such a individualized experience for each person that it's very difficult for me to say, oh, that person is this category of this diagnosis of that and mental health, because I feel like things are a lot more nuanced and complex than that. The issue is we don't know much about our body, let alone our brain, you know? And so it's just like one of those things where, you know, maybe research, you sort of wait for the right timing as well. And that is, you know, another thing that I, again, have learned to really understand and embrace is just timing. This idea that, it, again, if I was to pursue Dentuit, let's say if I had tried to pursue Dentuit 10 years ago, it, it would have been very different. My, my, I wouldn't have had the same mindset, the same connections. I, so I do truly believe that, and the technology hasn't fully developed. So you have to kind of take into all of that as you kind of think about you know, your next steps and, and the ideas that you want to kind of address. And is the problem solved to a certain degree, or is it still a long-standing problem that has yet to be addressed, really? And so those are the things that I also uh, look for, is those things that in society that, you know, why is this, you know, still an issue? Why are people just accepting it as an issue? Can we go about, you know, uh, addressing that? And then the mental health, going into also this idea of the concerns that uh, people have with mental health and, and social media a little bit. I, I, I also have been fascinated with what Sean Parker has been kind of recently vocalizing. One of the founding, well, the, one of the founders of Facebook and the founding president. And, and he's kind of notorious for, you know, being the founder, but equally notorious for being kind of um, rejecting kind of, you know, the, 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 the idea that Facebook is not, impacting anyone's mental health. That's that's, that's the guy Justin Timberlake played in the social yeah, network, right? right? Yeah, that. Yes, he has a certain reputation, but generally speaking, I, I really align with how he looks at the world and respects technology. And when it comes to Facebook and its impact on psyche, um, there's a reason why I don't have one. I don't have an account intentionally. It's one of those things where I do truly believe what Sean Parker is also saying is this idea that it's just a feedback validation mechanism a loop that really plays a deep and dark uh, role in, in, in a good amount of just regular people that are using it without any malicious intent. And over time, you just see it devolve into this kind of really almost addictive kind of uh, uh, mechanism for these human psyche. And it, it, it's those things that people don't want to talk about, don't want to even really kind of bring up to the surface. It's controversial. But if you have someone that is a founder and a, and, and a president, sitting president on the board of Facebook, saying that Facebook is an issue uh, in regards to this area, then it, it does strike a certain chord, a certain kind of seriousness. And I think over time we're going to start seeing the effects. But hopefully, before it gets too kind of uh, uh, severe, I'm hoping that there's kind of more recognition and, and, and solutions to kind of mitigate 
that level of psychological dependence, let's say, on 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 your Facebook status or, or among other likes or, or among other things like that. So, um, those are things yeah, that you know, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, because like those are things that you know, if I was in that situation, I would I would probably want you know to get out, you know, and so those are the things where are there solutions or alternative solutions out there that can help with that so that you're not kind of negatively affected by social media in, in that regard. Yeah, man. And and that thing about mental health is something that if you would build, I would love to uh, keep an eye on or be in the loop. And let me tell you why. During the why? pandemic in the Philippines, uh, someone made this mental health quiz wherein you would get results if you're a suicidal person, if you have good mental health, or if you're depressed. And the thing about it is it's made in the form of a BuzzFeed kind of uh, quiz, you know, the, the kind of BuzzFeed quiz where you just pick stuff. And uh, yeah. it's very dangerous in a way that, number one, it's not interpreted by someone who, I mean, it wasn't proven that it's made by no. some, an expert. There is no science that backs up that the result is what the result is. And second, I mean, it costs hysteria in, in the sense that I see some of my friends who are posting that they're already suicidal or depressive, which is already worse, especially during a pandemic where the lockdown is happening and, and you receive that kind of result, which you aren't even sure if that's 100% accurate. So it would be yeah. really cool if, if you made something like that, backed by science, backed by research, and something where if someone reads it, they don't have to share it in their social media and yeah. they would get the immediate help that they would need. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm on board with all of that. I mean, the thing is like, you know, I think it's a serious thing that we're going to start seeing. I mean, I think people say that in comments of YouTube videos that I, or like the news that I watch. And I think it's true. Although it's concerning is the idea that we're going to start seeing the real impacts of this pandemic after the fact it's over. So the mental, the kind of the undercurrent uh, uh, issues of things in the society, you know, the drug, the drug abuse, the, the, the um, and then the mental, they're all kind of related in my mind. And so a lot of it is like the, the, the depression and the suicide rates among younger kind of the, even the generation below me, you know, the prevalence of suicide there and that, and that. So it's like one of those things where it's, it, it is kind of insulting to kind of get uh, to see uh, something along those lines of some, some non-clinical quiz determining that someone is suicidal i, I think that's absolutely uh uh a terrible idea in my opinion at the same exactly. time it's equally important to recognize if someone is suicidal and so there's definitely ways of doing that without just having some publicly posted kind of quiz result on, on social media that's like probably how you don't want to go about it this isn't really truly related to mental health, but this is just one of those things where technology just makes you wonder, like, what, what was the benefit there? This is the I don't know. I'm sure you heard the Robin Hood suicide of this one guy, college student age guy, oh, yeah. at home, you know, because of the pandemic and just started yeah, yeah I heard that. Yeah, my friends were really into it too, and they're telling me about the Robin Hood way back, like years back. Like we were into cryptocurrency like way back, honestly. But the thing is, um, and I, I'm not into it. I'm not into stocks or anything like that. Um, I don't do portfolios. But the thing is, um, he saw a, a a negative balance one day, 
and he only invested five thousand, I think, of his own money. And he thought that he was only risking five thousand. He suddenly started doing options trading and got it to a negative balance of like close to a million dollars. Yet the thing was, it wasn't truly him, you know, being negative a million dollars. It was options where it was more just the risk. So I don't know too much, but it was it was this kind of really unfortunate situation where he thought that he owed and he was, he put his family in ruin. And because he cared so much about the welfare of his family, he thought that killing himself, which he did, would kind of alleviate some of the financial consequences that may may have come after the fact. The fact of the matter was they kind of clarified it in an eventual email to the family saying that it that wasn't exact that wasn't exactly the situation of him owed that much. It was just the way that the numbers looked at the time in the stock market or something along those lines. So that's like damn like 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 yeah it's just one of those things where it's yeah, like, that- I understand you know the 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 technological innovation with Robin Hood from you know how it brokers you know and, and makes its money without commission that kind of model is very innovative, like without question. It, it's it's a good attempt to kind of bring things, you know, you know, you know, increase access to more people to something like this. But this is exactly. like saying, oh, we want more people to be doctors, but screw medical school because that that's way too much. Let's just uh, do a, a less kind of sophisticated program that accepts more people, and we have more doctors now. I mean, exactly. imagine a society with like very kind of half-trained doctors out there operating on patients. Like that would be very concerning. And something similar was the case here, where we have amateur investors encouraged to trade options and, and realize, you know, uh, errors that wasn't even their errors on their part, and and and, and end up killing themselves. Exactly, man. And and yeah, that's also one of the reasons uh, why I said earlier, it's best that you perfect your app before releasing it. Because something if something like that happened, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, did, I do know Robinhood was an app where you could trade stocks. And yeah. if stuff like that could happen, it, it's very dangerous if it isn't properly thought of because of the possible implications. It's interesting how I'm in this situation now, for sure. I mean, think about it. Like, I quit my full-time job in July, in June 2020. So just think about that. In the middle of the pandemic, I quit, I do the reverse, quit my job and start a company. So those are the things that for any other person would think that you're crazy, but that just only seems to affirm the entrepreneurship philosophy of things of, you know, you sort of have to be crazy to make it in this kind of aspect of industry or business for sure. Crazy in a good way. Crazy in the sense exactly. of like being willing to take the necessary risk. I think that it's a little bit different for me now compared to 2009. Again, because I know myself better. Again, I'm working with the right, right people. I've educated myself more with a degree in computer science. All those smaller things really seem to amount to now me addressing perhaps even a worse economic recession in a much more productive and like, like you said, uh, making you know lemonade out of lemons here uh, in, a, in a much more productive and uh, meaningful way. And it's very interesting to kind of compare the two uh, scenarios here for, my, for myself, so for sure. Exactly, and also if you think about it, it will be a good plot for a movie if ever they'll make one of your life or something, a good TED talk.
topic yeah. if ever you'll right. have one or right. when you'll have one. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I, would love, I don't know about me, but I would love to see somebody else than like Elon Musk as like the technology guy in the news all the time. Like it would be nice to start seeing and, and Mark Zuckerberg, like it would be nice to see like some other now people coming up, you know, into the mainstream media in my mind that like is like this young kind of visionary that like is actually solving, let's say, you know, cancer detection with a blood test, you know, that you can do at home. So not Theranos, but, you know, something nah, like that. Theranos is a different story. Yeah. Theranos is a learning lesson for, for all of us, to be very, very honest. But, True. Um, that's another story in itself. And that actually, you know, also partially was the reason why I made certain decisions early on with Intuit. It's just seeing how Theranos did things. I was absolutely shocked and, and, and wasn't shocked about the end result, but was just shocked in, to the extent of what they're willing to do to kind of keep this train going as long as they could. Um, but that being said, I mean, yeah, I, I think, that you was know, a crazy story. I, I, I don't fanboy around Elon Musk. I don't fanboy about things like that. But it's more just I think it's time to start seeing and recognizing just the things that we don't see in main, you know, in main, uh, main media these days is just the innovation that's happening that we just don't see right now. But we're going to start seeing that by some really motivated and just just genius uh, visionaries that, that, that are even younger than us, I think, that are kind of kind of finally kind of come up and, and really kind of um, 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 emerge, uh, you know, out of, let's say, their own kind of space. And I, and I, I would it will be very refreshing because all the technology kind of stereotypes that you kind of see in, in mainstream media is really kind of spearheaded by, you know, Elon's presence on Twitter and, and all that. I could care less about that, but you know, those are the yeah. things that you know, I think will eventually come to pass and hopefully we'll see some exciting new kind of leaders and representatives of our kind of industry and our kind of space as entrepreneurs for sure. Yeah, and also if if Dentuit comes out in the market, it could be you. Now, again, thank you so much for your time. But before I let you go, I think this is the yeah. perfect time if you have anything to promote, like all your socials or or anywhere they could find Dentuit. Uh, this is the time, man. So please, yeah. the floor is yours. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, um, I, honestly, I I'm just glad to just be able to share a little bit about what we're doing. I, I think we're not yet at the stage of being able to really. Uh, present much in terms of a product, but I will say that we know what we're doing uh, in, in, a, in a certain way. We know what we, you know, we know our kind of industry, and and all, and honestly, I think you know we have something really uh, exciting coming up in the pipeline, and and you know just just giving you a you know fair warning that you know it's gonna it's gonna be a game changer uh, in terms of even compared to whatever our competitors in in the U.S. are doing. What they're doing is exciting too, and it's great, and I'm excited for them. But what we're going to come out with in the pipeline, let me just make very clear, and I just leave it at that: it's going to be a game changer for everyone, including uh, the dental industry first. But it's going to it's going to change the game for uh, how we access healthcare in general uh, moving forward. So it's going to be one of those things where uh, uh, you guys don't want to miss it for sure. 
Well, I'm definitely going to be in the loop of that. Again, thank you so much, Dan Lee, for joining us on this episode. It's been very amazing. To everyone listening right now, please uh, don't forget to check out Dan to it, Dan Lee. And also, don't forget to follow us on all our social media platforms and stream this on up where podcasts is available, videos available on YouTube. Again, have a great day, everyone. This is Paolo Gonzalez and uh, IDK What to Say. Wow, look at that. You you did it, man. You watch until the end of the video, which is so cool. And I love to hear your thoughts about it. So comment down below or follow us on all our social media platforms and tell us about what your thoughts are. Because IDK what to say.